you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. I think our stories have great impact and the stories that this industry chooses to tell have great impact. That's trans activist Janet Mock. She's a writer-director on the FX series Pose and Netflix's Hollywood. I know that in a world where there's not that many trans people, most people, cisgender people, do not have an interaction with trans people, but they can sit for an hour and invite these characters and these people into their homes and they can get an education, they can be inspired and enlightened um, and also entertained and want to spend time with people unlike them. I'm John Horn. As Janet Mock sees it, the pandemic work stoppage and the Black Lives Matter movement gave Hollywood a rare chance to take a hard look at itself. But after all the soul-searching, will the industry finally get it right with real representation, and not just in hiring, but also in the kinds of stories that get told? Mock believes the images we see are critical because they change how we see the world. This is Hollywood, the sequel. Welcome to our podcast. It's where we ask some of the entertainment industry's brightest minds how Hollywood could and should reinvent itself. And so we asked Janet Mock how she would write the story of Hollywood's future. Her first industry job was on the FX series Pose. She was hired by the series co-creator, Ryan Murphy. The show explores New York City's underground ballroom scene in the 1980s and 90s. It features more transgender actors in regular roles than any scripted show in TV history. And Mock made history herself with Pose, becoming the first trans woman of color to write and direct a TV episode. It wasn't just a great professional accomplishment. Pose represented a radically different view of the world than what Mock saw growing up. I know from my own experience as a Black, poor child uh, growing up in America who happened to come into consciousness realizing I'm trans. I grew up with all kinds of images of trans people that were not positive. I grew up with images of Black people that were actually in the 90s quite positive. (laughs) Um, And those images emboldened me. They changed um, and shifted what I thought was possible for myself in my own life. They gave me great sense of hope and escape. They told me probably in unconscious ways that I wasn't even, you know, aware of as a 12-year-old, that my life mattered and that I was deserving of taking up space. And I know that having access to those images affected me and allowed me to go out into the world and say that I am deserving. 
I'm deserving of everything this world has to offer. And so for me, uh, also having, you know, my first job in Hollywood being on the FX series Pose, seeing how when we cast five Black trans women to play five Black trans women on screen that shifted the conversations about who should be seen and who should be heard and who's valued. And I know, too, that that show has really not converted, because <laughs> that's a real weird word, but that show has opened people's eyes to the lives and the struggles and the sacrifices of specifically Black trans women and LGBTQ people of color. I have been stopped many times by mothers who say, I, you know, and these are cisgender women. These are not transgender women. These are cisgender women who have raised children who have said that Blanca is my hero. And Blanca, played by MJ Rodriguez, is a Black trans woman who takes in basically LGBTQ orphans who are kicked out of their own homes because of their parents' intolerance. And so in that sense, I know that in a world where there's not that many trans people, most people, cisgender people do not have an interaction with trans people, but they can sit for an hour and invite these characters and these people into their homes and they can get an education. They can be inspired and enlightened and also entertained and want to spend time with people unlike them. And so in that sense, yes, I think our stories have great impact and the stories that this industry chooses to tell have great impact on how people think, how they choose to interact and intervene when, say, a Black trans woman is being um, taunted or harassed in a grocery store or on the subway, that maybe if they had exposure and, and fell in love with Blanca on Pose, that they would go in and say, that's not right. When I spoke with Jenna Mock, it was one day after I'd done unconscious bias training at work. We thought and talked about how who we are, like our race, our gender, unfailingly affects how we see the world, how others see us, and shape our actions. And it was still on my mind how those reflexive assumptions can perpetuate some of Hollywood's worst practices. So I asked Mock for her take. On a very personal level, I think that people tend to hire people that they're comfortable with, not just not necessarily people who are unlike them. And so it's kind of rare for a white um, cisgender straight person in power to necessarily want to hire people who are not straight, who are not white um, and who are not cisgender. Right. And so I know for me, from my own experience, the way in which I was able to get into Hollywood was through a white cisgender gay man who saw himself in me and my story as an outsider. Ryan Murphy is someone who I know has shared experiences of feeling as if and being the only gay person in a room, one of the few out gay showrunners at the time when he was starting out his career from Popular and Nip Tuck. Um, he talks about the arguments that he had at that time. He talks about having to fight for the characters and storylines. And they told him, you know, uh, the characters just feel too gay, even though they were straight characters. Um, and so the fact that his worldview was constantly berated and sidelined, and he had to fight for that over and over and over again, I think there was a point of him that when he was starting to work on Pose, he 
realize that he necessarily wasn't the person, the central voice for this show and that he needed to seek voices unlike him. And I think it takes a lot of work, um, not just to uh, realize that maybe you're not the best person to tell that story, like that kind of consciousness, I just think in this industry is still kind of not quite there. And I think that what feels different about this time is that for the first time, it seems as if white people are taking it upon themselves to educate themselves, to do this kind of training and to look around themselves and to see who they're surrounded by at their workplace. And that alone should be like, oh, we need to shake this up. And so the second part of that is, is really cleaning house to a certain extent or expanding uh, those roles to promote people within who have been there to see what kind of hostile environments um, you have created in your company that has pushed Black people out of the ranks that has not lifted them up from assistant level to managers or to agents. So the premise of our podcast, Hollywood the Sequel, is that this might be a moment for Hollywood to reinvent itself. And initially, we were talking about the pandemic and the resulting shutdown, but now there are protests about systemic racism, and I think in some ways they're intertwined. So I wonder what you think of that idea, that this might be a moment where the industry can pause and think about and maybe even create a new version of itself. Yeah, I feel like there is seems to be a kind of a, a reckoning, a collective consciousness raising that is going on. I think that, of course, these movements have been around for decades, the movements for racial justice and, you know, defunding the police and holding institutions accountable to specifically Black lives. I think that we're finally at a place where creating task forces for diversity and inclusion um, have now been seen largely as lip service. And I think now, as a Black artist myself, that I am at the point where it's time for structural change and true action. And so, yeah, I feel this time feels different, largely probably because of the COVID crisis that Folks have more time to dedicate, to pay attention to headlines, to really analyze what's going on, to read books. And so that space of pause that was forced upon us has now kind of confronted us to really figure out what's next and how we make those those changes in this industry specifically. Coming up, Janet Mock on one tangible sign that change is happening more phone calls. Lots of incoming calls about trans, you know, stories, but stories that are wider, like a rom-com about, you know, a young black fashion designer. Like, (laughs) you know, these studios are starting to realize like, oh wait, there is this talent out there. We just have never seen them as a default to say that we should put them at the top of our list. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. 
Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. I want to ask you about your Netflix series, Hollywood. You executive produced it. You also wrote and directed on it. It's a look back at the golden era of Hollywood, and it's a little bit revisionist. I mean, people who aren't white and who aren't straight don't have it easy, but they do get some recognition, and they do have probably more opportunities than they did in real life. But I'm wondering, when you heard about this idea, how you connected to it, and what you thought was important about looking backward so that we might look forward. Yeah, when Ryan approached me to work on this series, I was really intrigued, obviously, by the Gilded Age of Hollywood, 1940s Hollywood, where the studio system really reigned, where stars were created and crafted and made and vaunted. Um, And this idea that we were going to play around and explore real-life people, like Hattie McDaniel and Rock Hudson and Anna Mae Wong, um, and give them, as Ryan said, quote-unquote, happy endings. Um, but my in and my interest really was, number one, being a fan of that of that era, loving the films of that era, and, you know, kind of having a bittersweet relationship to it, because when I did see specifically a Black woman on screen, she was either a domestic, like Hattie McDaniel was kind of forced and only given a choice to play at that time, to make a living and survive for herself and to also just to be an artist and to want to do what she loves to do. I'm sure there was a great aching within her, a longing to do more, to show that she could do more um, versus being mammified by an American audience and imagination. Or the second kind of role was a nightclub singer. Um, a nightclub singer like Lena Horne um, repeatedly played over and over and over for MGM. But at the same time, she never really got in-depth work. She was cut out of scenes or cut out of movies um, when they played in the South because, you know, folk down there, racist down there, white racist down there, um, who were lynching people at that time, weren't ready to see a Black woman, a Black person be vaunted um, and glamorized in that way. They wouldn't have shown up to the theaters. So I think for me, what really was my entry point was wanting to right those wrongs, wanting to give those specific women Um, the roles that they deserved. And so when I went into the room and we were talking about what to do specifically with the Camille Washington character, who's the only Black starlet on contract at A Studios, we discussed letting her fight for a screen test and wanting to play the ingenue, wanting to be the romantic lead that created a lot of exciting things. It created a lot of tension. Number one, Camille had to fight for this screen test and it was penned by a out black writer. Camille, I'm sure you're grand, but with you as the star and me as the writer, it becomes a message picture for color folks, limited distribution. Now y'all know that. Now I didn't come to Hollywood to make those kinds of pictures. 
just like I didn't set out to play domestics. As a Black writer and director working in today's Hollywood, I got to say and put things in characters' mouths that were very exciting um, for them to say. And that was, it was, it was fun to do that. And it was a great, uh, great, great challenge. So you're a storyteller, you're a screenwriter, but I'm going to ask you to write a different kind of story. And that is the story of how the industry can change itself and what its future might look like. You get to come up with a blueprint about how things are going to be different. What does it look like? I think it looks like a commitment to true inclusion and institutional support, um, It's not just the faces on screen, which, of course, we would applaud and we'd love to have more and more and more of that. But I think it's really systemic. And so I think, um, you know, our agencies, which are the industry gatekeepers in a sense, that they will recruit, retain and support um, Black agents. I think it looks like me being on a set Um, not only as director, um, but as a Black trans woman director being surrounded by LGBTQ and Black people and people of color below the line for crew, um, that I'll be surrounded with department heads that look like me, that come from my similar experiences, that I will no longer feel isolated. And the only, I think it'll look like you know, studios and production companies having many, many, many more senior level Black executives with green lighting power. I think it'll look like me being able to not have to talk about this stuff as a huge part of my work. You know, a big chunk of my work is talking about the radical notion of the way in which I tell these stories and that I am the one telling these stories. And I hope that one day um, that it's not so rare that someone from my experiences are trusted to call the shots um, or given the pen to write their own stories, that centering these kind of characters are not big headlines and that the actors on my show, specifically the trans women actors on Pose, are recognized for their talents in acting categories. And I guess, too, me being recognized um, in the writing and directing categories as well. So I hope that that's kind of what it looks like. If you were to sit back and think about how what has happened over the past four months has changed you as a person and how those changes affect your priorities as a storyteller, as a writer, producer, and director— Where would you say they line up? Where would you say your personal reaction to what's happened in the world is changing or reinforcing your ideas for what you want to do as a storyteller? You know, for me, one of the first things um, that really happened was that I felt more emboldened. I think that this greater consciousness raising um, made me, number one, not feel like I was crazy. (laughs) that all of the things that I've experienced in my life, the way that people talked to me, the way that um, even certain of my representatives would try to not so much dampen my dreams, but make me be more realistic, or I wouldn't be up for certain projects that I was completely qualified for. But now I feel more emboldened to not only check those people and get them off of my team um, and to realize they were never on my side in the first place, But to really, you know, the folk that are on my team, um, to tell them straight out what I expect of them and what I expect moving forward. 
um, I've noticed just in this last kind of shift um, since the world as I, you know, has been kind of on fire, you know, literally and also figuratively, you know, in everyone's bodies, home to home, consciousness to consciousness, I've gotten more requests if I am available to write and direct certain features, things that probably before this moment, I would not have been getting these incoming calls. Um, over and over again, I have had to pitch myself and to be passed over, um, even for projects that are with Black women at the center. Lots of incoming calls about trans you know, stories because there's not that many trans filmmakers um, with experience and credits in Hollywood but stories that are wider, like a rom-com about, you know, a young Black fashion designer. Like, (laughs) you know, these studios are starting to realize like, oh, wait, there is this talent out there. We just have never seen them as a default to say that we should put them at the top of our list. And so I am well, that's seeing- like That's like Archie in, in, in Hollywood, that he's worried he's only going to be pigeonholed <laughs> if he writes about race, that there's <laughs> only certain ways that people are seen if they've told one kind of story. Oh my God, completely. And that is something that has always been frustrating to me, you know, in my own career. And that's what I meant when I was referring to certain people on my team you know, often saying that I should be grateful that there's incoming calls for trans stories. But yes, I'm a trans woman. I am also a black woman. I'm also a woman. And so those experiences, I can tell all kinds of stories. I should be able to tell more stories, right? (laughs) When you think about it, I'm black, I'm trans, and I'm a woman. So I should be able to tell LGBTQ stories, female dramas and comedies, and of course, black features. And so For me, I never saw that as limiting. I never saw that my perspective on the world and my scope of the world is limiting. And I think that um, the industry is catching up to that. And I think, you know, uh, referring to Archie, writing those things for him was from my own frustrations. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm glad that things are changing, but you asked me what changed in me. I think that I feel affirmed by this moment as I'm also deeply traumatized by this moment. I am emboldened. I feel that my voice is sharper. And I also feel more hopeful in the sense that I can be even more brutally honest um, and incisive. And I think that, you know, true change only happens if we can be brutally honest with one another. And one last note. After we spoke with Janet Mock, this year's Emmy nominations were announced. While Pose actor Billy Porter was nominated, all of the trans actors on Pose, as well as Mock, were shut out for the second year in a row. In the weeks to come, we'll hear how streaming services continue to shake up Hollywood. Here's Netflix's Ted Sarandos. I do think uh, the way we think about what movies you do or don't see, I think the bigger they are, the more spectacular they are. Uh, That's kind of needed to get you off the couch. Uh, And the bar for that is going to keep getting higher and higher, I think. Our thanks to Janet Mock and to you for listening. We hope you'll subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please give us a rating, leave us a comment, and share this podcast. This episode of Hollywood the Sequel was produced by Shelley Lewis and Monica Bushman with help from Darby Maloney and Jessica Pilot. Our engineer and sound designer is Eduardo Perez. Our theme music is composed by Nicholas Bertel. 
Hollywood the Sequel is a production of LAS Studios. I'm John Horn. We'll see you next time. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.